Well, our gospel lesson for today, the seventh Sunday after Pentecost, comes from Mark chapter 6, verses 14 through 29. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some were saying, John the baptizer has been raised from the dead, and for this reason these powers are at work in him. But others said, it is Elijah. And others said, it is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For Herod himself sent men who had arrested John, bound him, and put him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because Herod had married her. John had been telling Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias held a grudge against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he protected him. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he liked to listen to him. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his courtiers and officers and for the leaders of Galilee. When his daughter Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it. He solemnly swore to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you even half of my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what should I ask for? She replied, the head of John the baptizer. Immediately, she rushed back to the king and requested, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was deeply grieved, yet out of regard for his oaths and for the guests, he did not want to refuse her. Immediately, the king sent a soldier of the guard with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison, brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. Then the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard about it, they came and took his body, and they laid it in the tomb. The Gospel of the Lord. Well, people of God, may the grace and peace of our triune God be yours today and forever. Amen. A number of years ago, a movie came out. It was a Pixar movie, animated version, or a division, I should say, of the Disney company, Wonderful, wonderful movies. Almost all of them are great. This one is called Up. And there is a moment in that movie where we are introduced to a character. And this character is actually a dog named Doug. And the amazing thing about this dog, he had belonged to an inventor who had somehow created a collar that went around the dog's neck that would take what the dog was thinking and make it come out in, 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 in voice form. So it was like the dog was talking. And the first time we are introduced to this dog, it comes up to the main characters, an, an older man and a boy. And he's, the boy is petting the dog, and the dog says, hi there. And they're amazed because the dog just spoke. And then he says more. He introduces himself. The dog jumps up on the old man. He says, hello, my name is Doug. I have just met you, and I love you. Squirrel! That moment has become perhaps synonymous with the idea of becoming distracted. I have a lot of conversations with individuals where we talk about this. Sometimes we, 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 we're talking about a lot of different things and we're covering the bases and then something distracts us and we'll be, oh, I just had a squirrel moment. Maybe you've had the same type of situation. Squirrel. I bring this up. 
this idea of being utterly distracted by something over here. When you're telling a story or you're having a conversation and all of a sudden your attention is grabbed that way. Because it almost seems like this story that we have just heard out of Mark chapter 6 is a squirrel moment. It's very, very strange when we look at the overarching narration of what's been going on. Through the earliest chapters of Mark's gospel, we have Jesus around the region of Galilee. We actually hear very early on in chapter 1 that Jesus is staying around the region of Galilee because John the Baptist has been arrested by Herod, something that foreshadows seemingly this story. But through all of this that's going on, as Jesus is attracting the crowds and as his, his, his fame is spreading around the area, all of these different things are going on. And then there's a moment that happens actually right before this passage when Jesus calls his disciples and in pairs he sends them out into the different communities and he, he empowers them to do amazing miraculous things, to proclaim the gospel and also the ability to perform miracles as well and to do so in his name. Now, as our story picks up today, that's referenced in the very first thing. We hear King Herod heard of it. Well, this is what he's heard of, that these amazing deeds of power that Jesus is up to, as well as what the disciples are doing in Jesus' name. And as we hear, Herod heard about it because Jesus' name had become known. Now, in this moment, it's strange, but it almost seems like our focus of the narration of Mark's gospel switches away from Jesus for just a moment and it switches over to King Herod. And King Herod has this squirrel moment where he remembers something that had already happened. There's this conversation that is going on. We hear about it in the narration as the people are trying to figure out who is this Jesus guy? And some of them are saying he's a prophet. Some of them are saying he's Elijah reborn. Some of them are saying it's John the Baptist. And Herod hears this, and he gets to thinking about John the Baptist because of his own personal history. And then everything else that we hear is seemingly John, or excuse me, not John, it's Herod's recollection as he remembers this oddball situation that's centered around the death of John the Baptist. Now, before we go any farther with that, before we get into this squirrel side note, we have to think about this whole Herod family. Because this is a family that has family drama like no other in history. They stem, when we hear the word, or the king, the name, excuse me, the name Herod, perhaps we think of the King Herod who was around when Jesus was born. He is actually the first King Herod, and he establishes this dynasty that lasts within the royalty around Israel for the course of about four or five generations. That's the dad of this Herod that we're talking about now. Now, this particular guy is named Herod Antipas, and after his father, Herod the Great, had died, he, Herod the Great had divided his kingdom into these four sections of the Holy Land known as tetrarchies. And each of the four rulers was a tetrarch, and they were the different sons of Herod the Great. And that includes Herod Antipas, and it also includes their, his brother Philip, both of whom we hear about in this story. Now, every single one of this family 
there was a lot of messed up stuff going on. And I believe it all stems from the example they had gotten from dad in the first place. Now, Herod the Great had been so paranoid that someone was going to usurp his power, just like, side note, he had done to the previous king, that he actually had many members of his family killed if they posed a threat to his authority. But then eventually he dies, and he does divide things up. And we have Herod Antipas, and we have Philip, and we have a couple of other sons. And in addition to that, we also have this wife named Herodias, and we hear that there's some strange situations going on there. Now, she, we actually believe, is a niece of Herod Antipas and of Philip, perhaps a generation younger, but she had married Philip, and then she's got a daughter who might also be named Herodias, and she might not be. There are some strange things in our, in our translations there that we can't quite put our finger on. But, uh, but So she's got this daughter, but she saw more opportunity with Herod Antipas than with Philip. So she divorces Philip. She marries Herod Antipas, and this is all kinds of strange family dynamics. Now, if you heard the story, you also get the point that she's not got a grudge against John the Baptist because John the Baptist has spoken out against her married, marriage to Herod. He says, it's unlawful for you to be married to Herod because you were married to Philip. It's not okay. And there's grudges. And there's all kinds of horrible, horrible family dynamics. She's got the grudge. She uses her daughter as a pawn to try and get back at John the Baptist because she wants him dead, but she doesn't have the power to do it. And then we've got Herod who's the king at this moment, or he's called the king, and, and he actually kind of likes John even though he's sort of confused by him and doesn't always know what to say, but he has him arrested, and he throws him in prison, but he also protects him from harm, even though he's got him in prison, and he likes to go and listen to him and hear what he has to say, even though John actually speaks out against him and says it's unlawful what you're doing right now, and that's not okay, and that's not good, and other sorts of teachings that John seems to give to Herod, and Herod doesn't understand it, and it's confusing, and then Herod's wife doesn't like him and is trying to kill him, and, and, and then there's his daughter in the whole situation, and then there's all these weird, strange family dynamics, and folks, if you think your family reunion is a, a drama zone, you've got nothing on the Herods. As it goes on, we hear that Herodias uses her daughter and this opportunity to have John killed. Herod is in a hard spot. He doesn't want to follow through on this, but he has made this oath to his daughter and or stepdaughter. We don't quite know what their relationship is either. He's made this oath. He feels like he has to uphold it because other people have witnessed it. And he will undermine himself if he makes this oath and doesn't make good on it. So because of that, because of all of this, John is beheaded in prison. His head is presented on a platter to the girl, strange as that is, and she then presents it to her mother. Her mother has, has made good on her threats. All of this strange stuff is going on. All of it resulting in the death of John the Baptist. That's our story. That is our gospel today. And I don't know about you, but I just find this whole story, this whole side note squirrel moment here in the gospel very, very strange. 
it's hard to understand. It's hard to ask ourselves or it's hard to wrap our heads around, Mark, why did you put this in the midst of it in the first place? Did we really need to know all of the story that lies behind, all of the strange dynamics that have led to the death of John the Baptist? Couldn't we have just said that John had been killed? Wouldn't that have been enough? And then move on from the story. What is the point of all this? And not only that, that's a good enough question to dwell on in the first place. But the other, perhaps more fitting question or more pressing question is where is Jesus in this whole moment? Keep in mind, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. John plays a very small, important, but very small part in it. Herod Antipas has an even smaller role in it. So why does the narration need to give us this? And where's Jesus in the whole thing? Other than that very brief mention of his name right at the beginning of the passage, he's not even present. He's not even there. And the more I thought about that, the more I realized that this moment, this troubling moment that has all kinds of horrible, horrible dynamics about it that ends with the murder of an innocent guy, all of this seems to remind us that sometimes the scriptures show us an apparent absence of God. Now, apparent absence of God. Because as we know, Jesus is still out there at this time. He is still doing his ministry. He's still teaching. He's still performing miracles. All of this stuff that had led to his name getting to Herod's ears in the first place is all still happening, even in the midst of this narrative sidebar. But when we think about the apparent absence of Jesus, maybe that's a bit of a hard pill to swallow, especially when we anticipate hearing a word of good news, a word of the gospel here in the midst of all of this. And we have this strange story and there's no apparent good news in it. I think about how this might apply to our regular lives, our day-to-day -day lives. There are times in our lives when we experience the presence of God in one way or another. And then there are countless different ways that the presence of God is revealed, that the power of God is revealed. Many, many different ways. But there are times, particularly when things are going pretty rough, when things are going really, really hard, when it might feel like God isn't out there. When we can't see those things because of our present circumstances, they perhaps blind us or deafen us to the presence of God. Or maybe it just kind of seems like God is hovering out there and there are no signs. And that also can be a hard pill to swallow, especially when we beg and we cry out, Lord, where are you? And the apparent, the apparent answer we get is silence. We're in a situation right now here in our community, particularly in and around our, our congregation, where, where perhaps this is fitting, where this is the case. In the last week, we've experienced a really hard death, a death with details that I won't go into. If you're local, you might know the details already, and, and that's fine. But just know it's a hard one. And it's one of those where we ask some really hard questions, questions where there are no good answers. And in just a couple of days' time from when you are seeing this, we will gather as a community for the funeral around that death. And we are asking still some of those same questions. And perhaps we're wondering, God, where are you? And this is one of those moments, just like our story today, where it seems like God is not even present, and that's 
But in moments like this, I always try and ask myself, where is hope? Is there hope? Is there good news? Is there something that we can cling to in the midst of what we are experiencing that is a way that we can have that little glimmer, that little thing to hold on to or to point out to one another to try and encourage one another to get through this hard moment? Is it present in this story? And folks, I think it is. Earlier this week, it was the same day when I had heard about that death. I actually sat down with some of my fellow pastors to talk about this very text. And as one of them read it, a statement jumped out to me. And it's what Herod says when he has heard about Jesus. And they're all trying to figure out who he is. And he says, basically, I think this is John the Baptist. I had John killed, but this is John raised from the dead. Now, we know it's not. But what Herod is revealing in this moment, whether he intends to or not, whether he's happy about this situation or whether he's afraid in this situation, given their history, what Herod is revealing is that resurrection is possible. Death is one of the hardest things that we have to deal with. It's a hard thing to wrap our heads around in the best of circumstances, and it's almost impossible to wrap our heads around given the worst of circumstances. Death, there is something that is wrong about it in any given situation, and I don't think anyone would argue with that. But the gospel tells us over and over and over again that the promises that of God that are made through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, those promises of God which result in a claim upon each of us as beloved child, that is a distinction that nothing overcomes, even death. And the promise that we have been given through the resurrection of Jesus is that yes, resurrection is possible. Herod was making a claim, even if he didn't realize it. He was proclaiming good news, even if he doesn't realize it, even if it doesn't seem like it. But folks, resurrection is possible, and it's not only possible, it's already a reality because of what Jesus has done. The promise of God's claim upon us is that we share in that same distinction. We have been made heirs to that same promise, which means we have been made heirs to the resurrection, which means, ultimately, death doesn't win. I have said this many times before. Perhaps you've heard me say this, but I will say this to my last breath. Death doesn't get the last word in your story. God does. And that is good news, even in the midst of the hard stuff. And if you are finding yourself in a moment where you can't quite wrap your heads around it, then I will proclaim this truth for you. The last word in your story belongs to God, not death. I will shout that from the rooftops. I will proclaim it day in and day out, over and over and over again. And if you have trouble believing that today, that's okay. We'll still be saying it tomorrow. The wonderful aspect of this gospel that we claim, that we hold on to, is that we are also invited to then share that with others. So if you find yourself today in a place where you can hold on to that promise, reflect that to others, share that with others, because it is for them too. May we all join in this holy work, because that's what we are called to do as the body of Christ. Amen.